This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Brandeis University, welcome to a special Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. Uh, what's special? Well, this is a live recording of a critical conversation that took place at Brandeis uh, as part of our multi-species month. And in response to uh, the appearance on campus of Peter Godfrey Smith talking about his book, Other Minds, and the challenges posed by the alterity of octopus consciousness. So we assembled three scholars, uh, one of them is me, to discuss from various disciplinary perspectives what we make of the alterity of other animal forms of being, experience, consciousness, and intelligence, and how they interact with the human. And specifically, you will hear a neuroscientist, Gina Terugiano, and the anthropologist Patricia Alvarez-Estacio, and me, talking mostly about Patricia's work, which is centered on alpaca human communities in the Peruvian Andes. And our conversation ranges beyond that, but in the show notes, you'll find ways to go back and pick out links to her scholarly work and also to her visual work because she's a filmmaker as well, uh, taking advantage of the uh, high visual appeal of those human alpaca interactions that she discusses. Uh, so with that, we pivot to the actual recording of uh, that live event. Welcome to the first critical conversation of this year. My name is Matthew Hedrick. I'm a physics professor, and I'm the chair of the First Year Experience Critical Conversations Committee. And on behalf of the committee, I'd like to welcome all of you to this uh, first critical conversation of the year, um, which is on the topic, uh, Other Minds Forming Communities with Non-Human Animals. Um, and uh, the idea with these critical conversations is to showcase the intellectual vibrancy of Brandeis, in particular across fields. And so um, uh, our um, moderator and discussants today, I think, really embody that. Um, so my job is just to introduce them and then, and then shut up and let them uh, have an interesting conversation. But I think what's interesting is they really span what you could call the intellectual diameter of, of the university. They're from three uh, very different um, uh, areas. Um, so uh, we have uh, Patricia Alvarez-Astacio, who is in the middle, uh, who's an assistant professor of anthropology and, and who studied um, uh, various things, including um, uh, the alpaca wool and uh, clothing industry in Peru. 
And what's interesting is uh, she not only does her scholarship in the usual form of the written word, but is also a filmmaker. Um, <clears throat> uh, and uh, the other discussant we have today is Jeanette Trigiano, who's a Levitan professor of vision and a world famous um, neuroscientist who has done very important work understanding uh, plasticity and stability, the interplay between plasticity and stability in neuronal circuits in the brain. Um, and the moderator today is John Plotz, a Mandel professor of the humanities, um, whose scholarship is in English literature and ranges from Victorian literature to uh, science fiction and beyond, um, uh, but um, uh, whose uh, intellect ranges well beyond that and, and uh, as illustrated, for example, that by the fact that he uh, has not one but two podcasts on books, which I find really impressive, and um, is also one of the organizers of a um, pr prison education project, the Brandeis Educational Justice Initiative. Um, so here we have these uh, three formidable intellects who are going to talk about um, uh, this topic that comes from the um, uh, first year book uh, that I hope you all read that I found quite fascinating myself, Other Minds. Um, and so as I promised, uh, after introducing them, I would shut up. And so now I will leave it to, I guess, John, who will explain how it's going to happen today. Yeah. This is going to be a conversation mainly between Gina and Patricia, and I'm really, um, uh, you know, just going to be here lobbing questions at them. But then there's going to be plenty of time for you guys to ask questions as well. And you can see there's a couple of microphones. So we're going to pivot to that sort of open conversation format towards the end of the hour. Um, so, you, as you know, the organizing principle for today's conversation is the idea of multi-species community. And I guess if we have an ethical agenda, I'm going to try to sum it up in one word, which is anti-anthropocentrism. It's kind of a portmanteau word, but it's one word. Um, we share this word, world with innumerable species. Gina, I, I had millions, but I was afraid Gina was going to correct me, with lots and lots of species, many of which have complex social systems and high intelligence. So can these species communities inform how we approach global communal challenges, such as the degradation of the environment? And so as you just heard, this conversation is definitely inspired by the new student book forum selection. And one of the chairs of that committee, Gina, is here. And that selection was Other Minds, The Octopus, The Sea, and The Deep Origins of Consciousness by Peter Godfrey Smith. So basically, as we speak here today, I want you to picture an octopus. That is, I want you to think about what Godfrey Smith had to say about the various models of cognition, sensation, and experience that we actually encounter in the animal species we know. And I would say this is even true for our backyard pets or our dogs and cats. You know, there's difference going on there, interesting difference. And also consider what that diversity right here on Earth has to tell us about the potentiality of even greater diversity. So yeah, I'm into science fiction, but I will say whether those other consciousnesses and forms of cognition that we can imagine really exist or not, like actually, nonetheless, the thought experiment is crucial for the anti-anthropocentrism that I think a Brandeis education is going to help you to cultivate. So I just want to say one word before we begin about a person who isn't up here on the stage but is really important, Elizabeth Ferry, who uh, I'm not sure if she's here today, but she, oh, she is. Oh, good. Um, she inaugurated, where's your hand, Barry? 
Oh yeah, yes, your glasses too. Okay, so Elizabeth Ferry really had the German was the germinal insight for this conversation, but um, she's the man behind the curtain there. Um, so let me turn now to Gina and, and Patricia, the stars of the show. And basically, if I could put you on the spot, could you each just say maybe one sentence or one paragraph about what, about what you hope we'll get out of today's conversation? Sure. Hi, everyone. Um, it's a lot of fun to be here. It's been a lot of fun, sort of planning what we were going to do today. Um, you know, I guess as a, as a biologist, I'm really um, keenly aware of our connections to other species and the really um, intricate web that we exist within. And we rely on this web for, um, for our life, you know, for food, for, uh, for clean air, for clean water. Um, it's really um, impacts uh, so many aspects of our lives, and yet humans have modified our environment to such an incredible degree that we can exist, you know, we can go for long periods of time without ever really encountering or noticing those connections. And so I guess um, if I had a hope from this conversation, what you might get out of it is that it would prompt you to really um, to open your eyes and to, to look for these connections, to see them, maybe, um, maybe even to feel them. Yes, um, so I think I have the same hope as, as Gina, and I come from it from a different angle, right? I think that not only we don't notice them, but it's about kind of reattuning, and this reattuning also makes us think about our own culture and our own communities and how we've learned to see or not to see the environment. So how can we kind of reflexively recognize those ways in which we've been taught to not see or recognize or overemphasize certain connections or read them in a particular way, right? How can we see them in a new form, right? How can we also kind of open our eyes to those ways in which we give nature and animals this kind of cultural and social meaning as well, right? As like a first step of also of recognizing. So, so one question I had for both of you guys really, but I, in a way, Gina, I think it might relate to you just kind of mobilizing your biological knowledge is just to talk about how we would think about this this example of the multi-species community in a greater context of like the multi-species communities that we all kind of live with. So, yeah. Right, I mean, I think um, many of them that are really influential for, for us um, are, are kind of invisible. Mm -hmm. Like one example that uh, does not involve um, intelligent species um, would be thinking about our microbiome, for instance. Um, and this is something I'm sure all of you have heard about. Um, you know that we, um, we're a colony. We have uh, you know, a thousand species of microbes that coexist with us. And that these are really critical symbiotic relationships. Um, we ob obviously give them a, a place to live, and, and we supply them with nutrients, but they supply us with nutrients as well. Um, and um, you know, it's, it sort of changes your perspective on the world when you think about yourself not as a, a just an individual, but actually as a as this incredibly complex colony that we we you know we depend upon. And you know, the influences um, 
I mean, some of this is overhyped probably, but it goes beyond just supplying nutrients. You know, there's, there's growing evidence that um, some of these microbes um, generate um, neuroactive compounds that actually influence our mood and our behavior in very um, important ways. So, so, you know, that's a really odd thing to think about. It's completely, most of the time, invisible to us, you know, unless you have to take antibiotics for something and, and then you feel really bad for a while and that's because you've kind of decimated this community and it actually has to regrow and it isn't gonna come back the same way it did necessarily, right? Because you might have wiped out some some elements of that, um, of that complicated, you know, these are all interacting with each other and they fill different niches. And um, so that's one, I think, sort of interesting aspect is that a lot of these communities, like this is a very visible example, right, yeah. where, where you see these people depend upon um, these animals for their, their livelihood. It's just really intertwined into the way they, um, they you know, every aspect of how they live. But there are all these invisible, um, connections like that that we're subject to all the time. I wonder what the alpaca eye view is on this. You know, what, what, do yeah. the, what do the alpaca get from this relationship? I mean, it's really clear that the, what the human uh, gain is and that this is a really respectful relationship. But you know, from the alpaca's point of view, why don't they just disappear into the, into the Andes and not come back? You know, I, see, I remember seeing them wandering around up into the hills and, you know, Nothing's keeping them, right? Yeah, and they, they don't run away like that. But one of the things that happens because of the ways in which humans have not evolved by themselves, right? Like we've evolved alongside with different kinds of animals. Some we've co-evolved. Yeah, with yeah. dogs we've co-evolved. Yeah. Others we've made them evolve into things. Mm -hmm. um, they need to be shared. Like, mm. um, like sheep too, right? And there was this like really... Um, story a couple of years ago, a really interesting story about this um, runaway sheep in Australia that got lost for I don't know how many months and they couldn't find it and eventually someone stumbled upon it and the wool had grown so large that it had got caught between trees and it couldn't move and who knows for how long it had been like dangling <laughs> in the forest or in the bush. Um, and so alpacas need humans to to shear them, right? They could not just, because it's just gonna keep growing. Um, so then that hinders their, their life. Um, they also get um, medical attention if they get sick, right? Or if they're injured, they get this kinds of, kind of human and veterinary or kind of indigenous forms of care. Um, they get, you know, if, if we go into kind of Andean cosmology um, or the mythology, right, the alpacas are the animals that, that move in between the kind of spirit realm and the human realm as well. So um, they're this kind of very interesting yeah. being. <laughs> Can I connect that to something Gina said at the beginning? Because I, I hear you saying there's an importance to the specificity of an indigenous form of respect, the way that the, the, these are animals that are woven into a coherent cosmology. But Gina, you also began by saying, like, we worry about getting cut off from our larger biological context. So, so the question I have is kind of tricky. It's about, like, I want to respect the difference of the indigenous forms of knowledge or understanding as opposed to, you know, 
our, our own Wolfam perspective, but also think about the common threads there. You know, because there's a way to tell the story where that is like you can, um, you know, um, alienate that as a form of knowledge. But but I don't hear you doing that. I think it's more like it actually is connected to, to Gina's point about like being aware of webs of of commonness or something. Yeah, I, 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 as an anthropologist, I, you know, I think it's important to recognize knowledge and, and points of view as well. And I think it also speaks to right how our culture and our society and our sets of beliefs allow us to see and understand nature in particular ways, and then that shapes our behavior towards nature. So regardless of the truthfulness, right, if the alpacas are actually this being that could do this or not, understanding them in this way and imagining that they have this other kind of point of view um, makes humans treat the alpacas and their environment in a particular way that I think is very different from us and that, you know, we can recognize, you know, huh, how do we see kind of animals, right? How do we see those relationships? What kind of knowledge do we value about animals? We can see how that shapes how we behave towards animals, what animals we want around us, what animals we don't want to see and want to do away with, um, which ones are okay as pets, which ones are not okay as pets, um, what kind of, um, who we want in our community and who we don't want and, and why. I think we're really not conscious about that and that lack of seeing has mm -hmm. big consequences. Mm -hmm. So can, I want to connect that. I've been dying to ask about, basically, this is the question about pigeons and rats. So I don't exactly know how to formulate it, but you know, we humans, you know, Gina, again, you said we are sort of cut off from our awareness of our environment, but in another way, we have successfully kind of wasted slash transformed so much of the globe. And of course, you know, cows live on that globe and chickens live on that globe, but also all of these species that we think of as kind of dirty, but they depend on a human Condition. So how do you guys think about that? I mean, not so much untainted wilderness, but just like the waste, you know, which is made by humans, but it isn't only inhabited by humans. Right. I mean, I think we're at a point in, um, you know, human takeover of the planet, if you will, where, you know, no, um, no animal species can avoid interacting with humans. I mean, there's almost no place on Earth where you can have a, you know, a, a community of animals that doesn't have to in some way deal with us, right? Um, and some animals have, animal communities have adapted to that very well. And I was actually thinking about um, corvids, which are one of my, oh, yeah. my favorites. Oh, so smart. Um, you know, so corvids are uh, crows, ravens, um, jays, uh, rooks. Um, and they're just an incredibly, you know, playful, intelligent, um, uh, you know, and, and, and what's interesting is that many of those species um, actually have thrived as human populations have grown. And part of the reason for that is that they're really adaptable. You know, they're, um, they're omnivores. They can eat just about anything. So they'll eat pet food or they'll eat, um, you know, they eat roadkill, right? All sorts of things that humans provide in, um, in abundance. Um, and at the same time, you know, our relationship with them is not necessarily just as a relationship with a, with a pest, right? I mean, 
Uh, if you think about the, the role that, that crows and ravens have played in all sorts of mythologies um, and religions, um, you know, uh, they've had this really important impact on um, the way humans view the world and, mm. and again, the relationship between um, when us and, um, and these different aspects of being, you know, crows are you know, typically the, the trickster animals, right? Yeah. Um, Spiders, too. Yeah. Right. So, so there are interesting situations where, you know, these animals have really managed to um, take advantage of what a human um, culture has, has generated. Um, and, of course, there's many examples where, where the outcome has been much, much sadder than that. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I spent quite a bit of time trying to befriend um, some crows in my yard during the pandemic. Yeah. But um, I had this neighbor who, who subsequently moved out, but um, he was, he didn't like crows very much, just put it that way. He was trying to grow all of these vegetables and, and yeah. hops and things like that, but the crows were always raiding. And so he would sit on his porch with his, you know, shotgun. Yeah. And he would, <laughs> you know, and... And the crows knew I wasn't him, but they still didn't trust me because, you know, like I would, I would talk to him and I would you know, I'd tell him not to shoot the crows. But so they can recognize different people and really um, adapt their behavior to that. But I, I like that I, I threw up pigeon as an example, which is one where we feel squeamish about an animal that does well close to us. But a crow is a better example because it's kind of, it's got a little bit of independent agency or something. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and when you start to think about, um, you know, how we view um, or how we can understand, you know, alien consciousnesses, I think the crow is also a great example to think about, especially if you contrast it to um, an octopus, for instance, you know. Um, and, you know, they're a bird really different evolutionarily from mammals, um, and yet they can use tools, solve complex problems, um, communicate. You know, I, I, I hear these calls. Some of them say, oh, someone's bringing food to the compost pile. You know, and then, and then all the crows converge or, you know, um, so, you, you know, so you can actually differentiate some of their calls. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, no, I, I think that's something. I, I was thinking about pigeons um, and thinking about not only pigeons but all these other animals that now, because of, of how we've encroached <laughs> in their spaces, are now entering and living in urban areas. Like if like if that wasn't common before, right? So like in Europe, there's a big issue with boars. So now you find wild mm -hmm. boars mm -hmm. in most cities because. They kind of need to live, and they're kind of adapting. And um, some of them become pests, and others are kind of welcome. And and it's interesting to think about, right? I'm, I'm from Puerto Rico, and almost all the animals we have there are in, invasive species, like <laughs> the bigger ones. So we have like Vietnamese pigs, um, which are super cute, are adorable, are pets for most people. Um, but now there's an overpopulation of them, they've gone wild, and they're a pest for us, right? Or thinking about our national frog, the, the coqui, which is this tiny little tree frog that sings at night, and for us it's like the best sound to go to bed, and somehow they ended up in Hawaii, 
and they're a pest. People can't stand them, right? And they can't wait like, they, to, to displace this kind of community out of the area. Um, and to, to think about also what is it about particular kinds of animals and the ways they make themselves at home in our spaces that allows us to welcome them <laughs> or, or not, right? I think it's... it's um, yeah, I was thinking about that Thomas Hardy line, which Mary Douglas gets credit for it, but it's really Thomas Hardy, dirt is matter out of place. So it's like a pet from pet to pest is just a semantic distinction. It's not a, yeah. So can I, I think this is a related question. It, basically, given that we're thinking about what we stand to learn from multi-species communities, so there's a lot of species out there with complex social structures and intelligence like the crow. I was thinking actually about ants, which are, I mean, it is true that humans have impacted them, but they don't, they seem kind of unchanged by that, you know? Um, so as we contemplate the implications of the Anthropocene, that is like a world that we have put our big thumb everywhere, what can we learn from other species that might inform um, our own way of being in the world? Want to start? Go first. <laughs> So um, I kind of, as, as an anthropologist, um, what the way I, I think about this question, again, goes back to, um, you know, I, I think there's a very common way of, of still seeing what we can learn about animals, and then this very kind of instrumental way. And I'm thinking here, there's another anthropologist who studied bees and how the military studies bee behavior to develop the technology, right? Mm -hmm. So that we can kind of continue putting our, our mark in more and more and more spaces. Um, so my interest, I think, is that when we go outside of our Western kind of viewpoint, right, that we've grown up in where cult nature is out there and we are humans and we have culture and we mold nature to our needs, um, even if that need is to appreciate it, right? And go on a hike and eliminate human trace from it, right? Like when we go outside of that framework, which is also part of the perspective that has allowed us to intervene in the natural world to the point that we've you know, messed up with geology, geological time. Um, I think you know, stepping out of that perspective and seeing how other folks um, around the world see and understand themselves in relation to nature or maybe see themselves as part of nature mm -hmm. and what that entails can give us ideas for how to see differently, um, how we relate to nature and potentially think of other ways of tackling these issues that aren't just like, oh, bees are really good at this, let's like, use electronic and AI to mimic it to further <laughs> our interests, right? So like like I said, like I, you know, I learned a lot from people, how people heard alpacas, but I think what I took out of it was a different way of, it's not like, oh, now, now I'm gonna go to the alpaca farm and tell people how to properly take care of the animals so they can do it better, but kind of a different sensibility of how to think of myself in relation to animals, how to treat the animals, how to engage with them, how to reckon with the fact that 
I'm a human and I eat meat and I also care about animals and the environment, right? And maybe the option is not being vegan, but like how can I kind of rethink my position in relation to something I deeply care about so that I could kind of maybe work towards a different kind of shift. So using those ideas to re, re, be more imaginative. Yeah, I can think of so many answers to that. Some of them are utilitarian, and you know, there's a lot of utilitarian answers. But I actually want to give it maybe a slightly different one. Um, you know, thinking as a neuroscientist, thinking, thinking back to um, uh, this book that you all read about octopuses. You know, part of I think what we can get out of um, interacting with um, other species and other communities of animals is. Um, a real expansion in, in our view of um, you know, the, the way, um, ways of um, being in the world, ways of um, forming a society. I mean, a lot of these animals have very complex social structures, and um, they're very different from ours. Um, or, you know, again, think, you know, watching an animal like a crow solve a problem in a way that might blow your mind that they could do this, but it might be very different from the way you would solve that problem mm -hmm. also. Yeah. And so I think it can give us this incredible appreciation for, um, for diversity, that is diverse ways of solving problems, diverse ways mm -hmm. of, uh, of being in the world that, that is incredibly useful for us as a species because if we're gonna, um, really make progress as we go forward and have happier um, you know, interactions with people who do things different ways and have different beliefs and different ways of, um, of being in the world, then I think those perspectives are really incredibly valuable. So, and it's also just, um, there's real beauty in it. You know? So yeah. for me, that, um, I think that, that's maybe the, you know, for me, that's why I like to to go out in the world and see other species doing the things they do, you know? It's... I mean, those films of crows playing by sliding down snow right. piles, like right. those are, they're beautiful, you're right. I was gonna say they were fun, but that's the wrong word. Beautiful is a better word, yeah. So I just wanna wind down here with just a few related announcements. I will say um, that Gina continues her fabulous work on sleep and brain plasticity. But I also wanted to mention that Patricia, I think this is right, you're now making a film about the color magenta. Is that yeah. true? That's an amazing, okay. Well, That's a conversation for next year. It's a you know? process right now. I'm working on one on thoroughbred racehorses in okay. Kentucky. That's, wow. And the magenta one. And I also wanted to say, if this topic interests you guys, um, please, go to the podcast that Elizabeth Ferry and I run together, Recall This Book. If you subscribe to it tonight, tomorrow morning at 4 a.m., the next episode is coming out, which is our conversation with, with uh, Professor Godfrey Smith while he was here at Brandeis. So we actually go into some of these questions about bird intelligence in that conversation. Um, and the book, the website also has further material, including an amazing essay that Professor Ferry found about touch in chimpanzees. So another way of thinking about these communities. So you guys, thank you so much. That was just so wonderful.
that concludes our live recording of a Brandeis critical conversation envisioned specifically as part of our multi-species month that we'll call this book. This podcast is sponsored by Brandeis and the Mendel Humanity Center, sound editing by Naomi Cohen, website design and social media by Miranda Peary of the English Department. Gina, Patrizia, and I are eager to hear your comments, criticisms, and thoughts on today's discussion. So please write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. And from all of us here at RTB, thanks for listening.